Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Abby Joseph Cohen, senior investment strategist at Goldman Sachs, but that barely describes her commitment to the education of those within the investment community, her work at the CFA Institute, uh, her work for years with Goldman Sachs, of course, with David Costin following on with the day-to-day grind. What's the difference, Abby, between what you do and what David Costin does every day at Goldman Sachs? I spend most of my time thinking about the intermediate to long-term outlook. Mm -hmm. David and many of my other colleagues at Goldman Sachs really focus in shorter term because we're trying to be helpful to our clients and many of our clients do need that regular hourly daily update i try to step away and work with our longer term horizon clients including individuals endowments sovereign wealth funds and so on many people looking into 2017 are huge Abby Joseph Cohen fans, and those are like, well, she's always bullish, and you and I know that's not true, but the idea of a permable, for starters, you look brilliant this year. I think you looked brilliant last year. You look brilliant in a seven- or eight-year bull market. Just as a general statement, can you be brilliant and be the permable for next year, or is there more caution? I think it's going to be more difficult in 2017 because there are so many unknowns. You know, 2016 turned out to be a good year for the economy, and that was the basis for being optimistic about the equity market in 2016. Economy growing, profits increasing, mm-hmm. labor markets stabilizing, wages beginning to rise. That's a great combination for the equity market. In 2017, right. the base will be good. The real question surrounds policy, a new administration, right. and quite frankly, there are so many unknowns that we will be adjusting views as the year goes on based upon changes in policy. Well, I like the idea of a flexible 2017, and we'll discuss Mr. Trump here uh, in a bit. Help me here with a chart I've been using a lot, which is the Ibbotson chart, Roger Ibbotson in Yale University, a chart that goes back to the Depression. I call it the Guadalcanal Low of 1941. Maybe the Carter Malays completely miss, uh, attached to President Carter, which is maybe unfair to him. And then there's this great bull market again, placed in historic perspective, the bull market we've lived since early 2009. We have actually had two bull markets. One, of course, has been the equity bull market that began in earnest uh, in the springtime of 2009. After the financial crisis was calming down, we began to see a very significant rise in equity prices, by most counts a tripling of those prices. Mm -hmm. But we've also had a multi-decade bull market in bonds. And I think that that bull market in bonds is now over. And so much of what investors need to think about, 
business people and so on, is what are the implications of having hit the bottom right. of inflation, having hit the bottom of interest rates, and how do we adjust for that? Yeah, this is critical now, and this is where you can really add value, I think, of the, the, the idea that I say equities, bonds, currencies, commodities. There's that relationship between equities and bonds. Let's suggest it was broken in the great distortion are we back to where equities and bonds are in sync like they were, say, in Frank Fabozzi's textbook? Not yet. Yeah. When we apply our valuation models to fixed income, what we find is that despite the rise in yields since the election, those yields are probably still too low. You and I have witnessed any number of bond bear markets. Remember the old days you had the Standard Poor's Blue Book and your, your grandfather showed you Boise Cascade bonds with a 4% coupon? Those days are gone. But what is unchanged is everybody goes yield, 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 yield. Yields go up, price goes down, and all of a sudden it's price, price, price on bonds. Are we anywhere near the definition of a bond bear market where people see significant price erosion? I believe that has already begun, and we've certainly seen that in treasuries and other high-quality bonds where we have seen more price decline than we've seen in things like corporate bonds because corporate bonds had a margin built in, if you will. Yeah. Um, so we are seeing yield spreads coming narrower, and I do think it's mm -hmm. going to be a problem for fixed income. But one other point, Please. we are at an unusual stage right now where the yield on stocks in many cases exceeds the yield on yeah. bonds. And typically this has been an extremely bullish long-term valuation metric. I know you're optimistic about the markets. I know you're optimistic that we will move forward, but are we gonna move forward for 25% of America or can we begin to shift the inequalities? As Lagarde mentioned here at uh, Bloomberg, can we shift our Gini coefficient? Cyclically, we're much better now than we were two years ago, four years ago, sure. eight years ago. Job creation is there, wages are rising. Structurally, we haven't really done the job. Mm -hmm. We're not investing more in education, either K through 12 or vocational training. And we see that the likelihood that a young man is going to finish college is actually lower today than it would have been 15 years Very ago. Very quickly, is this a plutocracy? Clearly, when you look at the employment data, the family income data, yeah. people who are well-educated, people who live in urban areas, by and large, have done far better. So the question for us in 2017 is, what will the policy direction be? Um, will the policies be favorable towards middle-income people, including perhaps increases in the minimum wage? Will it include protections for workers, well, both worker safety and other things? I want to jump ahead here to a new Fed chairman in this massive battle to come over rules and discretion. John B. Taylor, Stanford University, Alan Greenspan on the other side talking about discretion. Where are you on rules and discretion and the efficacy of that strategy for any given central bank? 
The word that I think is most critical here, Tom, is Fed independence. Uh, I think that to uh, look ahead to 2017, one of the big political footballs may prove to be the independence of the Fed, which I think must be sacrosanct uh, in this country. Now, when we talk about something like the Taylor Rule and so on, I think it's a good starting point. Uh, the Fed obviously uses many different mathematical yeah. models to try to determine where they want to be, where they think interest rates will be. Uh, but the Taylor Rule by itself is just one tool, in my view, in the larger tool bag. Are the checks and balances within the Washington system to give us William McChesney Martin's miracle of 1951. You served in a very independent Fed, relatively independent Fed, 25 years on from McChesney Martin. We want to drive that forward. Everyone agrees with you. We want an independent Fed. Are the checks and balances there to push back the mood of so many to support the president? I think it is important that it be not just the president, but also the Congress that acknowledge that the Fed should be independent. Mm -hmm. You know, when the Federal Reserve Chair comes and gives testimony before Congress, it's important that that be an open dialogue rather than the chair being berated uh, for things that may or may not come under uh, Fed right. control. You asked piercing questions at the Economic Club of New York this year, and as always, and there was the emotion of Vice Chairman Fisher coining that phrase, ultra-accommodative. As we go into 2017, not so much how much the parlor again, how many rate rises will we need? How distant are we from neutral, or even, heaven forbid, how distant are we from a restrictive Fed? I think we still have quite a ways to go before we have restrictive monetary policy. Keep in mind that the United States, in our view, will be moving forward with policy rate increases. But what we've already seen is that the intermediate and long yields that get controlled by mm -hmm. market participants have already moved higher. The yield curve has already steepened. It's an indication that investors are looking yeah. not just at demand uh, for these funds, but also in terms of the inflation uh, outlook and so on. When we talk about ultra-accommodative, the story isn't really yeah. the Fed. It's really the European Central Bank, the BOJ, and others that continue right. to follow negative interest rates. As, as you know so well, the idea, uh, in working with the CFA Institute and just simply the day-to-day -day grind at Goldman Sachs, there's nothing like the manufacture of a chart to intuitively understand those time series. There's something about a pencil or a Bloomberg terminal. The fact is you put the chart together, it works. For me, it was balance sheet of a given Fed to GDP. Japan is out of control with the expansion of their balance sheet, but the real surprise is Europe in the ECB. Tell me about the pressures on Mr. Draghi next year to right-size his ECB. Mr. Draghi has a problem that we see in terms of other central banks as well, and that is fiscal policy has been asleep and it has been largely inactive for most of the period since the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. We've seen more stimulus in the United States, 2009, 2010, than was the case elsewhere, especially in Europe, where they had the constraints that were very considerable in terms of deficit relative to GDP. So when we talk about Mr. Draghi, we talk about other central banks, let's not do it in a vacuum. Let's recognize that we have asked central banks around the world 
to do way too much, and that's because fiscal policy largely has right. been absent. In 2017, the ECB is going to be looking not just at interest rate policy, but also in terms of their approach to QE, uh, quantitative ease. And what Mr. Draghi has said most recently is that he doesn't plan to taper anytime soon. But what we have to keep in mind is that this is not a long-term opportunity. The arch question here, and this goes back to your work with the CFA Institute, the late Peter Bernstein's work with the CFA Institute, our conversations with David Folkerts Landau of Deutsche Bank and his work with Dooley, Folkerts Landau and Garber and all the other research that pulls in history. What is the fragility of the European financial experiment in the next year? What, what is your measurement of how Europe gets to 2018 or even gets to 2019. We have to recognize that Europe is facing notable structural impediments to growth. If we take a look at the potential growth rate of most European economies, take the average, it's just about 1%. Is that eurosclerosis? Is that that, that is eurosclerosis that has been in place for several decades. We see an extremely low birth rate. If you don't have labor force growth, you don't have economic growth. We see productivity gains that have been anemic. Uh, and so when we take a look at Europe, they really are struggling very hard against their structural problems. Mm -hmm. Monetary policy doesn't address structural issues. Fiscal policy right. does, regulatory policy, trade policies, not monetary policy. I want to be sure I get this in for this important year-end show. If we get the rate rise you're talking about, the reflation that is assumed, quickly here, rates rise in Japan. And yet that's been the multi-decade fear, hasn't it? Where's the tipping point for Japan? If rates rise. The tipping point for Japan has shifted. And interestingly, it's because they've been trying desperately to get inflation up. When we talk about rates, we often talk about nominal interest rates. We don't adjust for inflation. One of the big problems in Japan has been ongoing deflation. As prices begin to move somewhat higher in Japan, mm -hmm. they can tolerate higher interest rates. And we think that in Japan, right. we're seeing benefits not just from monetary policy, but from what's referred to as Abenomics. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their roles to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Christine Lagarde, with her new tenure at the International Monetary Fund, really addresses women within finance, within investment, and frankly, within our world economy. That's a good topic to speak to Abby Joseph Cohen about Goldman Sachs, senior investment strategist. And I go back, I mean, I think of your tenure at the Fed years ago. What was your first day like at Drexel Burnham Lambert? It was actually wonderful, Tom, because I was hired by the director of research who, during the recruitment process, specifically said to me, I have three daughters. Oh, that's a start. And I want to make sure that women at Drexel yeah. have every opportunity to succeed. 
we see it on Wall Street, whether it's, it's Madame Lagarde or, frankly, Madame Joseph Cohen. I think of Sally Krawcheck and how she did with an executive management of firms with the serious chops of securities analysis. My perception of it is women not so much work harder, but work smarter towards that marginal effort to gain on Wall Street. Where are we within the investment firms right now? Are the women outdoing the men? Well, I have to disagree with you, Tom. I do think women work harder. Yeah. Um, I think women work harder. They're often better prepared. And what we basically find is that women are succeeding most in categories that are easily measured. So whether it's investment research or yeah. portfolio management, where there are numbers that can measure performance, we see that women are doing quite well. One of the concerns we have had has been that we lost a whole cadre of people post-financial crisis. So many of the young people, male and female, who came to Wall Street um, in the period preceding mm -hmm. lost their jobs or decided to mm -hmm. leave the industry. And so we're missing some of those people who should now be moving into important middle right. management positions. How do you respond, and this is of course with your first-rate effort at Cornell University and your, full disclosure, your work with Cornell afterwards, how do you respond to the lecture you give to parents who have picked up the zeitgeist of 2017, stem, 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 stem. My experience is that doesn't work. It works, but you gotta have the broader education as well. When you lecture at Goldman Sachs to the interns, to the new employees, what do you say on that. I think I'd be saying the same thing you are, Tom, yeah, and that is, is STEM should not be viewed, first of all, as an independent area. This economy will move forward when STEM gets incorporated into the things mm -hmm. that we do. So, for example, about a third of the workforce at Goldman Sachs are people who are technologists. Um, and I believe that in almost any field right now, people who have the background in math, who understand what computers can do and so on, really have an advantage, mm -hmm. but that's not all. One of the things I really do worry about is the way we have devalued liberal arts. Um, think of liberal arts as literature, history, learning to think in, right. in different ways. So we need the analytical skill of STEM, but we also need the more qualitative approach that can and move out of a paradigm more easily from liberal arts. And what you have done within your work for decades is to pull history into our finance analysis. Nobody does that anymore. It's, it's important to understand the nuances and distinctions of 1907 versus 1929 versus 1937 and on. I see it coming back. I'm optimistic about a new history. I think you are correct, but let's be careful how we describe this. With the power of the data systems that we have, including the Bloomberg terminals on our desks, all of our people, experienced and the younger people can say, ah, look what happened in 1942. Mm -hmm. But what's often missing is the understanding of why it happened. And sometimes the data alone don't tell the full story. So to your point, mm -hmm. it's the understanding of political economy, not just quantitative mm -hmm. economics that I think will make a big difference. One of the lessons quickly that I, I learned from is when you see people advance. I've always followed people's careers. It's given me confidence as well. Ruth Porat working at a, uh, the evil empire known as Morgan Stanley, she goes out to Google and transform. I believe transforms uh, Google. I mean, there's an example of somebody going, uh, a woman going across industry and having profound effect.
Yes, and Ruth is also somebody who was involved in the community. Both you and I are engaged with Economic Club of New York, which is an yeah. important place, an important forum for conversation about economics, conversation about the economy and business in history and, and looking forward. And Ruth served as vice yeah. chair of that organization. I want to talk to Abby Joseph Cohen about where this nation is going and, for that matter, folding uh, the world economy as well. Abby Joseph Cohen on American exceptionalism. The book last year, Robert Gordon, Northwestern University. We did it in the 20th century. Maybe we're not going to do it now. I had a wonderful conversation with Professor Gordon where we nuanced that discussion. Are we reliving the glory days from a previous time? We haven't been keeping up our end of the bargain, in my view. The glory days had to do with a dramatic increase in educational attainment, not just for the elite of the nation, but for everyone. There were also substantial investments made, not just by corporations, but also by the federal government. Uh, during those glory days, 1950s, 1960s, 4.5% of U.S. GDP was in the form of R&D, mm -hmm. a good deal of that coming from the federal government. We're now down to two and a half percent, which puts us in the middle of the OECD pack instead of being far out right. in front as we are The middle of the pack is not exceptionalism. Not, not at all, particularly since we could be doing much better. Within this is, is the idea of jump-starting us to something new. Where does it come from? Does it come from government, government policy or does it come from crisis? What we have to understand is that crisis in the United States often pushes us in the right direction, not mm -hmm. just in terms of the corporate response, but also the government response. And one of the things that has been disappointing, I think, has been that as a nation, we have not made the investments in the future that we have seen in the past. Um, infrastructure spending, of course, is something that has bipartisan support. Would it have been better to have done it during the worst part of the financial crisis? Yes, when unemployment was higher, but that's not a reason not to do mm -hmm. it now. What we have to recognize, though, is that some of the discussions about infrastructure mm -hmm. are talking about it being privately financed, right. and that's not what long-term public investment is about. Right. The government when we go back and we look at centuries of analysis, the government contributes most spending on things where there is no profit motive, those really big projects where there may not be a revenue at the end of the day, right. whether it was uh, Eisenhower's highway system, whether it was the space program mm -hmm. and so on. That's how right. the United States establishes itself. Help me with the dollar. We haven't talked about the U.S. dollar. I think of Barry Eichengreen of Berkeley University, mm -hmm. his wonderful small book, important book a few years ago, Exorbitant Privilege. That's our exorbitant privilege, and it is part of American exceptionalism, whether the dollar as the standard bearer for the global economy 2017 and onward. Are we really at risk? I don't buy it. Joseph Nye doesn't buy it. I know that. The United States dollar um, is the world's reserve currency and will remain the dollar, the world's reserve currency. But let's keep in mind that China has already stepped up to become an increasingly important regional reserve currency in Asia. A few years back, 40% of all mm -hmm. trade in Asia was done in the form of dollars, even though the United States was only 10% of that trade. Right. China has moved in. But let's keep in mind the following. Over the last three years, 
the trade-weighted dollar has risen about 25 or 30 percent. While we feel good that it says something about mm -hmm. the U.S. being strong, it also is an impediment to economic growth. Single fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy has been exports for the last decade, but with our cost up 25 to 30 percent, that makes right. it much more difficult for exports to grow. Help me then with the dollar dynamics and this concept of American exceptionalism or a good capitalism, if you will, in what we've just witnessed in the campaign, TPP down in flames, both, both uh, candidates, and the idea of a new isolationist, zero-sum, mm -hmm. neo-mercantile America. Is that a genuine fear for Abby Joseph Cohen? It is a concern for me, and history would bear out that those sorts of models don't work, except in the very short term. Intermediate to long term, they harm not just the country imposing those policies, but it tends to hurt world trade as well, particularly for such a large economy like that of the United States. Do we have a fear that China, or someone else for that matter, takes the vacuum of our not isolationism, but just our reticence to move abroad now? Is there a fear that China comes right in and takes our place? I think we're already seeing the signs that China is very anxious mm -hmm. uh, to become even more important on the world stage, both economically mm -hmm. and politically. Uh, and we see it most clearly um, among their specific trade partners in Asia, but also in Latin America. Right. Keep in mind that TPP was designed to help Pacific Rim trade partners in the Americas and Asia, but did not include China. And the idea was to create a trade alliance among nations that right. did not include China. I want to sum up here, and you mentioned this, and I've heard Mr. Blankfein mentioned this before about Goldman Sachs as a technology company. I think of what Jeff Immelt's uh, doing with the Internet over at General Electric. One of the hallmark moments of December was a passing of John Glenn. You and I both grew up in space families, if you will. I was up in Rochester with Eastman Kodak, and you were wrapped around the Grumman people of Long Island. Here was the icon of a generation, truly, and it meant fearless innovation, testing, and I mean this with immense respect for all risks taken. Have we lost the, the risk, the fear to take the risk as a nation? I fear as a nation we have lost a great deal of that. Consider, for example, that many of the large expenses by the government going back to the early portion of the 19th century uh, had to do with funding research that may or may not pan out, the basic research and so on. We don't do that uh, in the same extent that we used like to. We don't fail like we used to. We're not willing to fail. Uh, it's a great way to express it because it's only the government that can fund uh, that sort of thing. When I say government, I'm referring to government everywhere, mm -hmm. not just the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. uh, and so by not providing that basic research, not providing uh, the capital, and by the way, not right. providing sufficient encouragement for our young people to become scientists mm -hmm. uh, and to really explore the facts and the data out there in the natural world, we mm -hmm. put ourselves at an enormous disadvantage. Uh, my book of the year is Ken Rogoff's The Curse of Cash. It is a wildly courageous book. He's been roundly criticized for it. India, with their own experiment, and Professor Rogoff has been critical of how India has tactically imposed this reduction of cash. And I know it folds into negative interest. It's in that. Abby Joseph Cohen, on our future with cash, are we going to be a cashless society? 
Um, not anytime soon. What we're seeing is a reluctance on the part of many people to give up their cash. And one of the issues now is not the theory behind going cashless. It is the reality of cyber security, uh, people's worry about loss of their information, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's financial or other personal information. Um, and I think that while we have seen a reduction in the use of currency mm -hmm. in the United States, um, our mm -hmm. currency, our mm -hmm. large denominations are used heavily in places like Russia. I, I, I look at all of this and the, the, the mixture of international relations and finance, investment and economics. And I guess I have to come back to one of the clarion moments of last year. I, I was deeply moved standing on the streets the morning after and the evening of June 24th in London. It was maybe my emotion of the year was Brexit and the shock of London over what has occurred. When, when you look, talk to your team at Goldman Sachs or you do your own thinking on what Prime Minister May will do in 2017, what is your view on how the United Kingdom will relate to Europe and to America? Here, too, we don't quite know what will happen. Uh, the British government has not yet made the decisions about how to move forward under Rule 50 uh, and, and so on. But let's talk a little bit about what led to that Brexit vote. Mm -hmm. um, and what we have seen in the UK, which is very similar to the pattern here on November 8th, is a very big difference by region uh, within the country and also rural uh, versus urban, or in this case, in, in Brexit, urban, successful urban versus not such successful urban A bimodal United Kingdom. Absolutely. And, and so uh, places that voted very heavily to leave uh, the European Union tend to be those areas where there's been a big loss of industrial jobs, even though in those regions uh, the individuals are mm -hmm. big beneficiaries of transfer payments from the EU. Yeah. Uh, think of the contrast to the United States where uh, many of the counties in the U.S. that are economically depressed, people are looking for a change, they're looking for uh, a different approach. Many of these uh, areas are also mm -hmm. beneficiaries of notable transfer payments from our federal government. So one question is, have people voted against their self-interest, number one? And number two, in the UK and the US right. alike, what will the new policies look like? Will the new governments be able to provide those middle-income and lower-middle-income yeah. uh, families who are feeling enormous economic pressure, will they be able to relieve that pressure in a positive way? That at least gets us to 2018. Maybe you and I'll do this next year as well. This has been really special. Abby Joseph Cohen, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.